I'm going to be reading from John 18 in just a moment. We're in a short narrative series that I'm calling The Day in a Life, The Life in a Day. It's the story of the last day in the life of Jesus and his disciples before the crucifixion. Oh, before we get into that, I want to say something about narrative-style preaching. I try to be as factual as possible in telling the story, and to do that, I read the text and parallel accounts of each event in all four Gospels, and then combine them. But to tell the story, I have to draw conclusions that the Gospel writers themselves don't draw. I'll give you an example. Last week, I suggested that Peter was feeling displaced. None of the Gospels say that. But the Gospels do record Peter's absence, or more precisely, they record or fail to record Peter's presence for an extended period of time prior to the final week in Jerusalem. And though the Gospels don't tell us that Peter was seated, for example, in a less important place at Passover meal, we know that formal dinners like Passover used seating arrangements. There's all kinds of evidence of that, both in the Scriptures and outside the Scriptures. We know that John was seated right next to Jesus. We know that Judas was seated near Jesus, probably on his left. We know that Peter had to motion to John from a distance. Based on that, I draw the conclusion that Peter was seated away at a distance from John and from Jesus, and therefore in a lower place of honor. That's the way storytelling goes. Same kind of thing applies to what I said about Judas. Though none of us know for sure what he was thinking, I've suggested that Judas deceived himself into believing and was deceived by the devil, into believing that his betrayal of Jesus could somehow work good. I presented Judas as confused and surprised by how things turned out. None of the biblical texts tell us what Judas was thinking. But they do tell us that after he saw how things actually turned out, that he despaired and went out and hanged himself. So I want to make clear that while I'm trying to handle the text with great care, the narrative style of preaching requires me to draw conclusions that the writers themselves don't draw. I also employ, carefully, I think, and in a way consistent with the text, what I hope is a sanctified imagination regarding the details. I mention all that to say to you, read the text. This is the most important story ever written. Read it for yourselves. And when you do, ask God to open the text to you and open you to the text. Now let's read John 18, beginning with verse 12. I'll read down through verse 18. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. <clears throat> Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the, at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold, and the servants of an official stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. We left the story last week with Peter following the detachment of soldiers that arrested Jesus. Only in the Gospel of John do we learn that there was someone else following, and, and that's the Apostle John. Peter has 
Remember that short sword, the Greek word is, actually refers to a sword that is particularly short. He has a short sword concealed under his tunic. He's not sure what he's going to do with it, but he intends to do something. He insisted that he would die rather than disown Jesus. And now he intends to make good on his promise. As Peter warily trails the soldiers, he becomes aware that someone else, someone nearer to the cohort, is also following Jesus. To his surprise, it turns out to be young John Barzebedee. And he rushes to catch up with him. After entering the city, they realize they're headed for the palace of the high priest, Annas, the famous political power broker. When they reach the gate, young John goes right in. The slave girl who is manning the gate recognizes him and opens the door for him, since John is well known to the high priest. Just as an aside, the particular word translated known suggests that John was familiar to the high priest, and some scholars go so far as to claim he is not only familiar, he was family, a member of the priestly line and a relation to the high priest. Others have thought that it's more likely that John's father, the owner of a commercial fishing operation on the Sea of Galilee, had a contract with the temple to provide fresh fish. We know from other sources that there was a market for Galilean fish in Jerusalem. So it's possible that John was known to the high priest through his father's business dealings. The slave girl quickly admits John, but she refuses to allow Peter in until John can get permission from someone in the high priest's office. As Peter waits, that concealed sword pressing against him, his mind is racing. He needs a plan, but he doesn't have one. Suddenly the gate opens. John has apparently gotten permission for Peter to come in, but John immediately leaves, presumably to be with Jesus, and Peter sees no more of him. The girl waves Peter in. As he steps through the door, he quickly surveys the courtyard where members of the high priest staff, temple guard, and household slaves are gathered, places much larger than he imagined. He realizes suddenly that he has no idea where Jesus is being kept. How can he free him when he doesn't know where he is? And all of this happens just in a split second. As he passes the girl at the door, she says almost offhandedly, you're not one of his disciples, are you? The question is phrased so as to expect a no answer, and that's just what Peter gives. He's on a rescue mission. No, I'm not, he says. That's strike one. And Peter moves into the courtyard, his eyes darting, the inside of his arm rubbing up and down on that sword hilt. Meanwhile, in a luxurious room inside the palace, Jesus waits. He's been left with a guard, but without an explanation. Then a slave opens the door and Annas enters. Annas is the former high priest. Now that's all confusing because in Judaism, a high priest was high priest for life. But after the Romans came, they deposed high priests regularly and put their own high priest into office so that they could maintain control. Annas is the former high priest, but his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the current high priest, and it's Annas who enters the room. It'll take at least an hour for the high council to be convened. Messengers have to be sent throughout the city to summon council members, and this old man intends to use that time to interrogate Jesus. He's confident of his ability to find evidence that can be used at the trial to condemn Jesus. 
He smiles. This Galilean peasant will be putty in his hands. Annas is polite one moment and fierce the next. He questions Jesus closely about his disciples, hoping to learn something that can be used to cast them in a revolutionary light. Had they this past Sunday joined the chant, Blessed is the King of Israel? Had they started it? Did they orchestrate the entry into Jerusalem? Had they procured the donkey's colt for Jesus to ride? Was it true that one of his highest-ranking disciples was a member of the Galilean Zealot Party? Annas has all kinds of questions. Jesus has no answers for him. He looks calmly at Annas and remains silent. He knows that almost anything he says will be twisted by this wily old man. Annas gives up on that line of questioning. He knows that his time with Jesus is limited, and he moves on to question him about his teaching. The old man has made brigands and terrorists bulk, but Jesus is not intimidated in the least. Others may tremble before him, but Jesus never. Frustrated and knowing that Jesus must be sent on to the council, Annas sends him away, disturbed by his failure. I mean, he is Annas, the high priest. He never fails. While this is going on, Peter is in the courtyard. He's been admitted through the gate. He's looked around. He's trying his best to blend in, but his best is not very good. The temple guard, fresh back from Gethsemane, built a fire in the courtyard to ward off the early morning chill. And Peter joins them, trying to look inconspicuous. Standing around the fire, he realizes that one of the men is watching him. And the man sees that he realizes it. So the man says to him, in the same words the girl had used a little while earlier, you're not one of his disciples, are you? Again, the question expects a no answer, and it's so easy to give a no answer. And Peter says, no, I'm not. Strike two. In any other setting, Peter would never have denied that he was Jesus' disciple. But here, armed with a sword and hoping to use it, what else can he do? He doesn't even think of it as a denial. He's still thinking of himself as the hero, probably the tragic hero of this story. But one of the men standing by the fire has taken notice. He was one of the high priest people who had gone to Gethsemane. The man that Peter attacked was his cousin. Unlike the previous two questionnaires, he doesn't say, you're not one of his followers, are you? He says, I saw you in the olive grove, didn't I? In Greek, it's possible to word sentences so they expect a yes or a no answer. This one expects a yes answer. I saw you. And Peter starts talking. He doesn't even know what he's saying. Why do you people keep saying that? I told you I wasn't. What do I, what, I have to swear to it? But someone else in the group says, yeah, he's one of them. Listen to him. He's got a Galilean accent. Peter feels like a net is being drawn around him. He says angrily now, I'm not one of his disciples. I swear it. I never have known the man. At that moment, right in mid-sentence, two things happen. One, Jesus comes out of a door, accompanied by guards, and he looks straight at Peter. And two, a rooster crows. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. 
Peter doesn't even know how it happened. He went to the high priest's palace with some idea of saving Jesus, and yet he ended up denying him. Well, what happened to him has happened to many people over the years. Instead of listening to Jesus, they try to do what seems best to them. Maybe even try to play the hero. They can say to Jesus, we cast out demons in your name. They can say, we kept all the rules. They can say, we worked harder than anyone else, sacrificed more, gave up the things we enjoyed. But they can't say, we trusted you and did what you said. Now, Peter's out of danger, but he's in despair. Jesus is surrounded by danger, but he is master of the situation. After the interrogation by Annas, Jesus is sent on to the Sanhedrin. Here's where the real trial happens. It's what people in our story call the fourth watch of the night, the wee hours before sunrise. The council members wakened in the middle of the night are still trying to get their bearings. Witnesses were rounded up as soon as the temple guard was dispatched, and the plan was to convene the trial the moment the council members arrived. The Romans have an execution scheduled for today, and Annas and Caiaphas want to make sure that Jesus is part of it. Were the Romans to execute him, so many of their problems would be solved. They could step back and watch and lay the blame for Jesus' death at the Roman prefect's door. But the trial goes poorly. The council hears one witness after another, but their testimonies conflict. The high priest is increasingly frustrated. You can see it in his face. The witnesses his staff brought him are fools. He can't do anything with them. Failing that, he had hoped to use Jesus' own testimony against him. But Jesus is refusing to testify. He won't say a word. Caiaphas realizes, and perhaps Annas is sending him a note saying as much, that he's losing control of the proceedings. If he doesn't do something quickly, the council will dismiss charges. He knows that he could get the Sadducees on the council to convict Jesus of sedition. That would not be a problem. But the Pharisees have no heart for that. And he needs their vote. So he takes a chance. Though the Mishnah forbids the president of the council, who is the high priest, from directly questioning a defendant, he knows he's moments away from losing this case. So he does it anyways. Not any question, but one that's designed to raise the ire of the Pharisee members. He orders Jesus on oath to say whether or not he's the son of God. Jesus answers, literally, you said it. Yes, it's as you say. That is exactly the answer the high priest wanted. In a dramatic gesture, one designed to inflame the Pharisees on the council, he tears his tunic, which is a sign of outrage or grief in that culture, and he says, blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. Now, this is all theater. It's melodrama. He asks, why do we need any more witnesses? Only because he has no more witnesses. 
He repeats the word blasphemy twice for effect, knowing that it will go straight into the hearts and minds of his Pharisee members. He throws that word down like a gauntlet before them, and they respond exactly like he wanted them to. Guilty, they cry. He deserves to die. He's worthy of death. And the high priest sits back in his chair and heaves a sigh of relief. So far, so good. And yet he has a problem, and he knows it. Annas is determined to have the Romans carry out the execution because they execute by hanging a man on a cross. And the Torah says anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. They can use that. If the people revolt over this, they can blame the Romans. If there's no revolt, they can say that Jesus was obviously a pretender because he was under God's curse. But he knows the Romans will never execute a man on a charge of blasphemy. And that's a problem because it's on the charge of blasphemy that the high court has found Jesus guilty. So the high priest says, yes, he should die. He must die. He's blasphemed the name of the Most High. But we can't carry out the execution. The Romans have banned us from doing so. We must take him to a Roman court. Only the Romans can execute him. The council votes on the motion to transfer Jesus to Roman custody, and the vote passes unanimously. By the way, that means that some council members were not present. Some were not called Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and perhaps others. Caiaphas looks over at his father-in-law, and his father-in-law nods approval. Everything's going as planned. But manipulating the council, that's one thing. Manipulating the Roman prefect is entirely another thing. Pilate has been around the block a few times. He's clever, he's capable, he's arrogant, and he's also hostile. He's had more than one run-in with Annas and Caiaphas. He knows them well, and the truth is he can't stand them. When the council representatives arrive at his office, his exchanges with them are dripping with contempt. But Caiaphas is just as wily and cruel as Pilate. He brings three charges against Jesus that he knows will force the Roman prefect to hear the case. That's the first obstacle, get him to hear the case. So he accuses Jesus of one, subverting our nation, two, of opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and three, of claiming to be Christ, a king. He says nothing about blasphemy, nothing at all. That would be a total non-starter, probably get the case kicked right out of court. Now, even though Pilate despises this man, he can't overlook charges of sedition. He has to hear the case. But after just one interview with Jesus, one interview, he knows that the charges are trumped up. All he has to do is look at Jesus. You are the king of the Jews? It's ridiculous. It's one more example of the pettiness and never-ending rivalry among these Jewish leaders. He tells Caiaphas and the people as much, but they insist. They tell him they have eyewitness testimony. Pilate agrees to hear what they say, but it's a farce, and he already knows it. 
as the Jewish prosecutor levels one accusation after another. He turns to Jesus and says, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus refuses to dignify their accusations with a response. And Pilate's amazed. Now you need to know, so backstory. Pilate has had some legal troubles of his own. And while he hates the Jewish leaders, he's also a little afraid of them. They have already sent a delegation to the emperor in Rome to lodge a formal complaint against him regarding misuse of funds and the use of excessive violence. And Pilate has been reprimanded. Another accusation, and he could lose his job. So when he learns that the Jesus movement started in Galilee in the course of the questioning, Pilate thinks that he's found a way out from under all this. He asks if Jesus is a Galilean. When he finds that he is, he sends the whole lot of them to King Agrippa, the Roman-installed governor of Galilee who was in the city for the feast. This is the same man who beheaded John the Baptist. This case, he says, is in King Agrippa's jurisdiction. Not in mine. Go to Agrippa. But Agrippa refuses to hear the case, and he sends Jesus back to Pilate. And so Pilate announces that he's dismissing the case. Send him to Agrippa. Agrippa wouldn't hear it. I'm dismissing the case. Now, remember that the high priest did not want anything to be said about blasphemy for fear that the prefect would throw them all out. But when Pilate announces that he's dismissing the case, someone on the council, probably a Pharisee, incensed at both the high priest for being a coward and the prefect, says, no, he has to die because he claimed to be the son of God. The high priest must have gasped. It was exactly the wrong thing to say. (coughs) The prefect turns on his heels and immediately leaves the room and has Jesus brought before him. Caiaphas can feel a guilty verdict slipping through his fingers. He can hear all the things his father-in-law will say to him. And it's because of those stupid Pharisees. But he has misread the prefect. Pilate is a Roman. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he is a Roman nursed on stories of the gods taking human form. And Jesus is so different from anyone he has ever met. Might a God not act like this? And then to make things even stranger, Pilate's wife sends him a note saying, don't have anything to do with that man. I had dreams about him all night. Pilate tries to reject the thought that this strange man might be a God in human form, but he can't get rid of the thought. He finds himself sweating. More than ever, he wants to set Jesus free, and now he's trying as hard as he can to do so. He returns to the courtyard where the Jewish leaders first met him, and he's surprised to see the number of people has swelled by dozens, maybe a hundred, with more people coming all the time. And then he remembers it's feast day. It's customary for him to release one Jewish prisoner on this day as a goodwill gesture, and people always gather. He announces to the Jewish leaders, now this is the third time, that he finds no basis for a charge against Jesus, but they react with fierce anger, and he hesitates. 
It would be political disaster. It would be the end of his career were they to send another delegation to Caesar to lodge a complaint against him. But he has an idea, and it seems like a brilliant one. Why not let Jesus go as part of this year's prisoner release? So he asked the Jewish leaders and the growing crowd, shall I release the king of the Jews in this year's release? But he is miscalculated. Most of the people here have come to request the release of one of their friends or a brother. They know nothing. These are Judeans. They don't know anything about the man whom, of whom Pilate speaks. The largest group among this crowd are supporters of a Judean hero, an insurgent named Barabbas. They have brought all their friends and neighbors to come to Pilate to plead for his release. So they shout out, not this man, but Barabbas. The high priest who's standing down with them reacts with remarkable dexterity of mind. He immediately joins their cry and sends his attendants through the ranks of the council, beckoning them to do the same. Soon the chant, Barabbas, Barabbas, begins, and it grows deafeningly loud. Pilate finds himself shouting, trying to get the crowd's attention. Then what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews, he screams. The man who had earlier shouted at Pilate, he must die because he's claimed to be the son of God, now shouts, crucify him. Pilate says, crucify your king? But the high priest sees another opportunity. He starts a second chant, crucify, crucify. He beckons his people to join in, crucify, crucify. The people who have come to plead for Barabbas realize that this will help them, and they join the chant too, crucify, crucify, crucify. There's a demonic madness spreading through the crowd. Even now, Pilate does not want to execute this man, this strange godlike man. He yells at them, why? What has he done? But the high priest shouts back, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Caesar's friend was a technical term. It was a title bestowed on faithful soldiers and administrators in the empire. See, this is a bare-faced threat. If you release him, we'll have a delegation on the way to Caesar tomorrow to accuse you of gross misconduct and willful neglect of duty. If you intentionally let a rival to Caesar, a claimant to the throne, go free, you are no friend of Caesar. Pilate knows he's trapped. Either he chooses Jesus or he chooses himself. He's had many years' experience choosing himself and almost no experience choosing anyone else. So he gives in, not just to the demand of the chief priests, but to the demand of his own selfish past. They've been calling this the trial of Jesus, but the prefect suddenly realizes that's a misnomer. This is really the trial of Pilate. And he's just found himself guilty. He signs the order of execution. But even as he does so, he feels he's the one being condemned. Pilate has been outdone by the high priest, and that calls him. But he's been undone by Jesus, and that frightens him. 
There's no use denying it. He never had any doubt about what he should do from the very first moment. It was never really a matter of Jesus or the Jews, of justice or injustice. It was always a matter of protecting the one thing he cared most about, himself. Pilate doesn't realize, but his story with Jesus is part of a much bigger story, a story that's unfolding right before his eyes. It's the story of God and of Israel, of Israel and its representative. It's the story, the story of Israel is part of an even bigger story, the story of God and the world, the world and its substitute. The way Pilate plays his role in that story will make a huge difference in Pilate's life and destiny. But nothing Pilate does or fails to do will prevent God from making this story come out right. He's just that good. Now, it strikes me that sooner or later, we all must play roles like the ones Peter and Pilate played and in the very same story. The only difference is that our part of the story hasn't been published yet. And as with them, so with us. The sticking point is never out there in our circumstances. It's always in here, in our character. When Jesus stands before us, and we hand down our decision, it's always on ourselves that we pass judgment not on him. We reveal our character. We acquit or condemn ourselves by whether or not we stand with Jesus. In the 19th century, there's a musician who wrote a song based on the story of Pilate. In the refrain, he asks, what will you do with Jesus? And then he warns, neutral you cannot be. Pilate tried to be neutral, but failed. And we'll fail too if we try to be neutral. We can reject Jesus, or we can surrender to him. But we can't escape him. There is no escape. We're the God with whom we have to do. We try to avoid, escape that truth, but Lord, you won't let us, and I'm thankful for that. Lord, we're no better than Peter or Pilate. You know that. And you love us anyways. Thank you. Thank you in Jesus' name.